Just a little housekeeping before you get into this episode. I want to say there is some language, but if you've listened to any of my podcasts so far, you know that there usually is some language. There is also talk about suicide and death. So if that is difficult for you, you can take this podcast in two parts. The first part is about holding space in grief. And the second part is about suicide. So please be kind to yourself. Don't listen to anything that might um, cause you trauma. I don't get into really any kind of detail. Um, It's just talked about. We're talking about suicide in this episode. So take care of yourself and do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Care with me, Angie Fatal. I am still fighting whatever that is that's going around, the cough, the congestion. So hopefully you won't have to listen to me clear my throat and cough through this episode. But if you do, it's what I like to call real life. And real life is happening all around us. That brings me to what I want to talk about today. Um, Isn't there a saying, best laid plans and all that? This was not my best laid plan. What I'm going to talk about today, I had different plans. I had people that I wanted to interview things that I thought I wanted to talk about. And when real life is around us, we have to change. We have to adapt. We have to think on our feet. And real life has happened to very, very dear friends of mine Their child took his own life on Monday and they are dealing with the aftermath of that. And I talked about it a little bit yesterday. I did a haven't done an IGTV video on Instagram in a long time, but I was kind of at that point where... I was going a little bit stir-crazy. If if you don't know much about the Enneagram, maybe I'll do an episode on the Enneagram. I think right now a lot of people are doing episodes on the Enneagram. So you can look those up. I won't tell you which ones I like because um, I don't listen to any of them. I I found my Enneagram enlightenment years ago and have clung to the book ever since, which is Wisdom of the Enneagram by Riso and Hudson, sort of book slash workbook. And it's, it's been really important as I've gone through the last, it's probably been about 15 years since I've gotten in really into the Enneagram, maybe longer. But anyway, I am a two, which is the helper. 
And when things like this happen, or any kind of tragedy happens, I go into kind of probably my own self-preservation mode, which is to do. I, I got to do stuff. I got to help people. I've got to... I was on my hands... I was on my hands and knees on the floor, which I haven't cleaned my kitchen floor on my hands and knees, full disclosure, probably in 10 years. It's a mop situation. But I had so much anxious energy burning up inside of me with nothing to do and nowhere to put it that I just got on my hands and knees and cleaned the floor. I mean, there was a reason our kitchen floor was dirty. But as a two, and I'm sure it's not just unique to the helper, um, I'm sure everybody kind of feels like they want to do something or hibernate or preserve themselves in some way. Um, Because grief is hard and there isn't really anything that we can do except for show up when we're allowed to show up and not burden the people going through it and say fucked up stuff. Which, for all of you out there that have grown up in the church or not grown up in the church, I know for me specifically growing up in the church, you would think because the story of Jesus is really a grief story. You know, it was not good for him. You know, there are a lot of victories, a lot of healings, a lot of amazing miracles along the way, relationship and connection. But he died a torturous death and was betrayed. So anyway... You would think in that situation and dealing with humans that the church would be more equipped to talk about grief, but they are not. And I learned on the lap of the church about dealing with grief. And what I learned is say something stupid Like, oh, they're in a better place, or, you know, God knows what's best, or heaven needed them. I don't know. Um, So I, I have had to teach myself through my own grief and through walking through grief with other people how to just be present. How to not say anything. Especially if you don't know what to say. Just say, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to be here for you, but I am here and I am present. But do not burden them with your own bullshit. So... You know, I I am far away from my friends. 
and my friends are dealing with the greatest loss that you can experience, which is the loss of a child. And to have that child have taken their own life, I think it changes things. Um, And it's complicated. And it is a mirror of what life is like. Life is complicated. And often there are no words and no deeds and nothing that can be done except to show up if we can and if we can't to hold space, light candles, do good. But it brings me to, you know, just this idea of doing, you know, so for me, it would have been really nice for me to have a super busy work week, you know, work archery workshops <clears throat> you know every day spiritual direction appointments every day busy but as it fell my week has been pretty empty my daughter is at camp as a counselor you know zions in la Todd is busy with work and I have been alone with my thoughts and I'm not going to say it's gotten pretty dark because I think it's just grief and because at least in whatever American culture is we and I, I, I would I would hazard a guess that it's not unique to American culture any culture that kind of is ruled by the internet or instant gratification and the sanitization, I'm not sure if that's a word, of emotional things and death is going to be familiar with our inability now to, or our lack of skills, maybe that's a better word, our, 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 our skill. So I'm not saying we do not have the skills to sit in grief or in pain or in loneliness, but I would say that a big part of living in our fast-paced world is letting those skills atrophy. And not, I mean, you're never going to know how to help somebody that's child takes their own life. You're never going to know how to deal with that. You're never going to know how to meet somebody that's 
baby dies. You're never going to know the right words for somebody whose child gets the flu and goes to the hospital and does not come home. You're not going to know how to do that because it's unique to every situation. But there is something to be said for honing the skills of empathy. Of not getting our own needs met when we are in grief for somebody else that's in grief. And I think the reason that we hone these skills is because, my God, humanity needs it. It's not even a, you know, it's not even about death. It's about, and I hate this word, human decency, because I think that, what does that even mean? It's so nebulous, and everybody's idea of human decency is different. But maybe if I define human decency by building your empathetic muscles. So if we look at ourselves or empathy like a container and we strengthen that container to hold the pain of other people, the loss of other people, the depression, mental illness, tragedies, all the things that we as humans can go through, if we enlarge our container to hold the pain that people go through, it doesn't mean we're going to have the right words to say. It just means that we're going to be less prone to say the easy, shitty thing, the platitude. We're going to be able to sit with our personal discomfort long enough for that other person to not have to go through their own grief and also carry our bullshit along with them. And it is uncomfortable especially when we have not trained ourselves to hold that kind of space and our culture doesn't train us to hold that kind of space. Our culture trains us, whether that's church culture, work culture, um, our friend culture that we've built, if that trains us to kind of medicate it, you know, whether that's through alcohol, drugs, television, computer, games, whatever it is that dulls our senses to the pain of others, if that's our go-to, then we have to train ourselves to kind of build that empathy for others which is a world-changing thing because when we are able to build empathy for others, it is harder for us to see people as other. 
it's harder for us to other people. No matter who they are, no matter what they're into, if we have built our capacity for empathy, we have to see them. It gets less and less possible to other them when we have when we build this container, when we work on ourselves, when we don't expect uh, other people to carry us. So there's a couple stories that I thought about when I was talking and one is a work environment and I have a friend whose mother died and her mother was like all the way across the United States and and my friend was here. And it happened out of the blue. And her work was very compassionate. They gave her time off. Um, She went home. She did what needed to be done. And then eventually she had to come back to Portland. And I don't remember how long it was. But I remember her telling me that you know, I think it was one day she had to go down to the parking garage or something and just grieve. grieve. That's, my, that's my dog. The dog's barking is a little nod to my dear friend, Kathy Escobar, who I'm holding space for today as she goes through her grief, which will be ongoing. But her dog, Raina... If you remember, if you listened to the episode with Kathy, <laughs> jumped on my the back of the couch and onto my back and scratched me in the face when we did our podcast. So dogs are always a deal on this podcast because I'm always dealing with my dogs. But I want to go back to what I was saying. And my friend, I'm going to just say my my friend Becky lost her mom. This was a few years ago. And so she was at work. This is, you know, maybe a month after her mom had died and she was back. She had been back at work, you know, doing what she needed to do. And I think she needed, she went, she went somewhere. Maybe it was the car, the parking garage, and she was crying. And I don't remember if the person said it or the impression that Becky got was, you know, based on the reaction that she got from this person. But basically the person said to her, when are you going to be done grieving? When are you going to be done grieving? Never. Never. I'm never going to be done grieving the loss of my mother. That That's not how it works. Yes, maybe grief lessens. Grief definitely comes in waves. But you're never done grieving your child. You're never done grieving your parent if you had a good parent. And she had an amazing mother. So you're never done grieving. You're never done grieving 
a spouse. You're never done grieving. It is just different and it changes. But that was her work environment and they spelled it out for her in that moment. Your grief is inconvenient to us. So can you just tuck it all away and make sure we don't have to be uncomfortable by it anymore? So that's what I'm talking about with culture, you know. But grief doesn't work like that. Anybody listening that has experienced grief of any kind, it doesn't work that way. It it changes and it shifts and maybe it lessens in its acute intensity. But it doesn't, I don't think it ever stops. I could be wrong about that. Maybe somebody out there is like, well, you know, I'm not grieving anymore. I, And maybe what I mean by you don't stop grieving is I think with um, people that we lose, we don't stop grieving. I think maybe the pain dulls and it lessens and we can move toward more joyful stories and remembrances and the beauty that that person brought to our lives and that's kind of what we focus on. And maybe the grief, like for me, the loss of my community, which in turn meant the loss of most of my relationships. You know, to be honest, it is not the same thing as losing a person. So I want to make that clear. Losing the bridge was not the same thing as Todd losing his brother. They are not the same thing. But I am still grieving. It's been five years and I am still grieving. So I can't say for sure. I do know that the grief has lessened. It's not as acute. It's kind of dulled. It is still painful. You know, when somebody reaches out to me out of the blue that hasn't talked to me in five years and asks me, if food church is still going or it just it's not a simple meeting out of the blue it ha- it carries a lot of weight with it for me and that weight is all tangled up with the grief that i feel and the loss that came with serving a community for over 16 years. It, it's, it's just not cut and dry. You can't separate them out like I think we want to. We want to put them in all these little compartments. Okay, over here is a little spot of grief and then over here is a huge box of all the joy and experiences that I had and over here is the music that Todd and I did and over here was giving birth to two children within that community and over here, it doesn't work like that. It's a knotted up ball of string that I can't, un- can't untangle. So maybe, maybe in that way it is similar to the loss of a person in that you just can't untangle it. And they 
are infused in every part of your life, in every moment that you've had, in every celebration, they've been a part of it. So it's just not easy. I do want to say in that one of the things that I have found very meaningful in holding space and grief for my friend Kathy has been, and let's be honest, it's really for me. You know, I can send out all of the love and care and strength that I have for her and Jose and Josh and Julia and Jameson and Jonas, I can send it out there. But the action is for me. It's not really for them. Just like anything that we do, we can infuse it with our love and our care for people. And I'm not saying it's without meaning. It definitely has meaning. But it is really for me. When I have nothing else to do, I create something. And so what I did, and I talked a little bit about this on the video I did on Instagram yesterday. I I don't have an altar. Um, I just, probably my whole house is some kind of altar because there's art and books and probably what other people would consider junk everywhere. Everything in my house pretty much has meaning to me. It is not what whatever that woman's name is, Kondo, would um, appreciate. Anyway, so what I did when I found out that Jared died is I found some candles put them all in the same place and lit them. And that and I also which is kind of happens to me <clears throat> because I'm a singer. I had a song come into my head and I think it's funny cuz it's never a song that I really want to sing. Like <laughs> it's always like a super old 70s church song but it's what I had and so I lit the candles and sang that song at the top of my lungs throughout my house and then I came back to the candles sang the last line of the song and that's my dog and um, just kind of stood there in front of the candles and held whatever space that I could and sent out whatever love and care that I could. And then I, you know, sat on the couch and did some work and I was alone that night, which ended up kind of being good just because then I could do not that Todd, Todd would never stop me from expressing myself, but sometimes, I'm sure as you know, doing something that you feel kind of silly doing, 
you're not really sure, you're working it out as you're doing it, it's easier to do when you're by yourself, especially singing that song. Um, so, you know, at different times, I would look at the candles and I would send my energy and my thoughts and my love towards them. And then one of the candles went out because it burned down. And then I just let it burn out. And then about an hour or so later, I blew out another one. And then I kept this taller candle that is similar. It's, it's basically one of the Catholic prayer candles. I don't know what they're called. Um, but it has a political figure on it. Anyway, doesn't matter. I think Jared would think that was funny. Um, and I kept that one going long into the, late into the evening. And I think Todd got home around 10.30 that night. And we were kind of processing and talking and... When it was time to go to bed, I shut off all the lights in the house and I said, hey, will you come over here with me? And we stood in front of that candle and I held his hand and we said, be with them, be near them, hold them, love them. I don't even remember what we said. And then we blew out the candle and stood in the dark for a minute just holding that silent space. You know that space that is nothing, but it is everything? It's that space. Where no words, there aren't any words for it, it just is nothing that's imbued, I think that's a word, imbued, filled with something and then we went to bed and it was helpful to me it was really helpful to me and I've kind of done that every day not in the same way but I've lit that candle every day for this whole week and that's what I've been able to do other than having phone calls with people that are also grieving and talking it through in whatever way we can. I highly recommend doing something that has action with it. So again, it's that thing that really is not for the person. Yes, it is for the person. It's symbolic. It's has meaning. But it's also to give you something to do, a place to put your grief a place to put your love and your prayers and your energy and all of that into something, into an action, which for me does something in my psyche. And that's powerful. That action is powerful. So it does, it is meaningful. So when I come back, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about, um, what to do there isn't there's nothing really to do about
suicide except to talk about it, but I want to talk about it. So, suicide. The thing that I think about first is if you just knew that it would get better, you wouldn't do it. And that's not probably true. Or maybe somebody would say to me, you know, what the hell do you know? How do you know it's going to get better? And that would be a very valid question. I don't talk about it very much, and it's not because I'm ashamed of it. It just, I just don't talk about it very much. Um, but I have had probably, it started in high school, um, suicidal thoughts, which now I think they call suicidal ideation. I think that's the technical term. And I have had it on and off most of my life and at different times I've had less control over it I guess you would say so in high school you know this is in the 80s it wasn't talked about you know I would never have even thought about going to a counselor at school. And I don't even think we had a counselor at my school. And I would never have told my parents. Um, I did have um, an unsuccessful attempt in high school which I'm very grateful for because it was... This is a tricky thing to talk about. I would say in that moment for myself, um, I was not in my right mind. I was in an extreme amount of grief and I was in an abusive relationship in high school and that added to the impetuousness that I felt. The, the need to be free that I felt like it was going to give me. And luckily for me, the person that I was dating at the time was able to stop me. And I'm alive because of that. That is... (sighs) 
I am still, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm still that person. I still have, I wouldn't say I still have suicidal thoughts, but I still have darkness that comes over me that I have to use all of my skills to get myself through. I think that'll make sense to a lot of people out there. I know that there are people that the thoughts never go away for. And I I think it would be dishonest for me to say that the thoughts don't come. I'm not saying that the thoughts don't pop into my head. But I have, I think for me, maybe the difference is I don't have any plans. There's never been more than a thought as I started to get help and therapy over the last, you know, 20 years. So I want to say that there has been a lifetime of work in there, ongoing work. So even if I'm not in therapy at the time, I am always doing work. That That is my survival. Um, there is not a way for me to, I think, exist in the world and rest on my laurels. It just, I think because of family of origin, um, mental health issues within my family, uh, it's something, you know, and my own abuse, uh, it's something that I have to continue to work on and, and will until the day I die. But I want to say that I think one of the things about suicidal ideation is the shame and the secrecy. Very similar in a way, I just realized to people that have been abused, it's the secret, it's keeping the secret that keeps that shame alive and fed. And there are very few things that are more terrifying than speaking out that secret for the first time. But when we speak out a secret to a safe person like a therapist, or hopefully we have a safe friend at least, or a safe partner, a safe parent, maybe. I don't know what it, who it is for you. But taking the risk to tell somebody extinguishes some of its power. So for me right now, I'm realizing that it's possible that I have never told that story. And I don't think I didn't tell it because of the sh- because of shame. It's possible. I have to do some reflection on that. I think it probably just didn't get talked about because I was dealing with my childhood abuse and have been, you know, for the last almost 20 years too. So that took precedence, I guess is what I'm saying. But they're kind of all, again, like that ball of string. 
they're all tangled together. They're all part of the same whole. I am that person. I am that person that looked for an escape. That is part of who I am. And I work very hard building up my personal container so that that is not my go-to. I speak to people. I lean into my own vulnerabilities so that I can bring that darkness, that that um, need of escape into the light. But it's, you know, all of that work is hard. And so I want to go back to, you know, saying it's going to get better. Because I feel like if somebody could just hold us for long enough for us to know that it's going to get better, it does get better. And it may not get the better that you're expecting. Like, mine got better. And then I built different tools and got different wellnesses (laughs) Um, and then you know I started dealing with the repressed memories that I had and it was a whole new it was a whole new thing that I was looking down the tunnel of And I think because from the time I was 17 when that happened to the time when I got pregnant with Zion and started to deal with the repressed memories, I had been doing really hard work. And so I had built some skills that helped me hold the new pain that I was going to be dealing with. It is different for everybody. And I don't know if there's a right way to get healthy mentally, therapy, safe friends, vulnerability, talking, 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 talking. So that people know and can hold you when you cannot lift yourself up. I I, I know that probably there are people listening right now that have suicidal ideation and I want to say to you whether you believe me or not the world needs you 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 to show up and be seen and be counted and be for you to be present for you to have your voice heard for you to have your ideas listened to 
for you to be seen and heard and loved, that is what the world needs. Each person brings something unique to the world that cannot be brought by anybody else. And that is the truth. And if you cannot believe it for yourself, call the suicide hotline, call friends, build people into your life that will tell you the truth about yourself if you can't believe it for yourself. Because the truth is the world needs you. There is not a counterfeit for you. There is just you living uniquely in the world as your true self. The world needed me. I have done my own little part. I have not done everything perfect. I have not done everything the right way the clean way, the sanitized way. But to the best of my ability, I have been bringing my full self forward, which has taken some time. So I, I want to acknowledge that. It's not like all of a sudden I brought my full self forward and I have never turned back and I've lived fully who I am, unembarrassed. That's not even a word. Not embarrassed fully who I am in the world, unapologetically. That is not how it's been. I still have fear. I still have anxiety. I still have PTSD. But to the best of my ability, every day I am bringing my full self forward into the world. And that's all I want. That's all I want for myself is to bring my full self forward into the world. And that's what I want for you. I want you to bring your full self forward into the world. Please reach out. Reach out to me. I'll talk to you. I don't have a ton of abilities, but I have some. And what I have, I can give to you. And I would freely give to you. Because... You deserve to be heard and seen and loved in the world. So before I go, I I want to remind people there are things available for you if you struggle with suicidal thoughts. Um, one, you're normal. Lots of people struggle. Probably a lot of people that you don't even know are struggling, are struggling right now. People just don't talk about it. There is a national suicide hotline. It is free to call. It is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that is 1-800-273-8255. I do know that many therapists... In at least in Portland, I'm pretty sure in every city, there are therapists that do free or sliding scale. And if you're looking for that, I don't think you would have to look very hard. Um, I know that often schools where people are learning or becoming therapists, um, they offer free or sliding scale. 
usually it costs, but I think it can be an, as inexpensive as $5. So there, there is therapy available and there are people out there that are willing to help you and really are passionate about helping you. If you are somebody that is young, most cities have teen suicide hotlines and you can call, I'm going to get that number. If you are a teen in Oregon, there is the Oregon Youth Line. You can call from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. if you need help. The number to call is 1-877-968-8491. Again, that is 1-877-968-8491. You can also text teen to teen, which is 839-863. That's teen to teen, 839-863. Or you can get online, which is to chat with somebody online, is OregonYouthLine.org. That is O-R-E-G-O-N- Y-O-U-T-H-L-I-N-E dot org. Those people care. A lot of the people answering the phones are youth that have been trained to take your call, that care passionately about your life, and adults that also care and want to see you be free of the suicidal ideation and the negative self-talk because you are worth knowing, you are worth loving, and you are worth being in this world. If you need further help, you can reach out to me at angiefatal.com or email me at angiefatal at gmail.com. I do a sliding scale and I am willing to talk to anybody about taking better care of yourself or getting the help you need or just having somebody listen to you and talk to talk you through this you're not alone you may feel alone right now and it may look around you like you are alone but that is one of the so one of the negative things about the internet is you know isolating ourselves from pain but one of the benefits of the internet is there are people online all of the time wanting to talk to you. So please utilize what is out there and available for you to get the help you need. And if you need help finding that, I am willing to help you. Remember who you are. Remember that you are worth knowing, you are worth loving, you are worth being in this world. And I know this is a podcast, but I see you. And you're not alone. Love you. Bye.